Hello and welcome to the Seeking Health podcast with Josiah and Anjuska Meyer. I am Josiah. And I'm Anjuska. We were missionaries for seven years until we stepped back in 2019 to seek health and re-examine our beliefs. Right now, I'm a Christian, but not an evangelical. And I'm an agnostic and also not an evangelical. We are deconstructing and reconstructing together. Listen to some of our key episodes, such as Deconstructing Together, Domestic Abuse, I'm a Survivor, The Cult of ATI, Part 1 and 2, and Humanized by Purity Culture. Join us on our journey as we seek health together. And also with us today is Rebecca Lemke. And uh, this is kind of a... Hi. (laughs) Hi, Rebecca. Um, This is exciting for me because uh, this has been a long time in the works. I've been podcasting since 2011, but it was just kind of me in front of my phone, kind of talking through my ideas. And you reached out to me and we're like, hey, we should do a podcast. And so, and that took a while to get figured out. And then finally we did a podcast and it was really, really great. We talked about anorexia and purity culture. You were actually the first person that mentioned purity culture to me. And I was like, huh. Really? Yeah. Oh, like, that's so cool. It's so weird. We keep having this experience where we talk about purity culture and people, and people don't know what it is. And we're like, how do you not know what it, it is? But you were actually the first person that mentioned that to me. And that helped me understand my wife better um and then but then anyways that podcast bad things happen with the technology and then things happen in your life things happen in my life and now we're back here again and I'm really excited to get back into this podcast and redo it and you've had some you you've had some progress on your side and we've had progress in how we think and how we experience our faith as you heard a little bit in the introduction we're deconstructing our faith and kind of trying to figure out what is healthy that's kind of the that's our guiding light. That's our North star right now. It's just what is healthy. We want to be healthy. Uh, we used to kind of think like, what is doctrinal truth? Now we're just like, what is healthy? Like we just need to be at peace with ourselves. So um, yeah, uh, you have written a book called Scarlet Virgins and you're also on Twitter. Um, yes. <laughs> uh, the- I'm trying to think. I think my Twitter handle is at me crunchy mom. <laughs> okay. I think. <laughs> What is it? At New Crunchy Mom. New Crunchy Mom. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. I'll look you up. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> so let's just jump right into your story. Can you tell me a little bit about who was young Rebecca Lemke? What was your childhood like? And how was that perhaps a little bit different than a typical childhood? Yeah. So really where my childhood began to deviate into the atypical was um, right after kindergarten. My sister and I grew up in a household where one of our parents had dyslexia and couldn't read. And despite, you know, all these different technologies that we had, even at the time, the, you know, paper where it would change the way you could see things and the reading pins and all that kind of stuff, it was honestly inadequate um, in every capacity. So one of my parents ended up having to drop out of high school, I think in eighth grade. Um, and the same high, the same school that we were going to at the time was the same one that they had had to drop out of and there was no advancement in what they were able to provide for people with dyslexia. So my family was already really kind of worried about if either of us developed it and things like that. And we also had a real difficult time with sort of the socioeconomic situation going on at that school with the peers, um, where you had some really bad things happening because it was an impoverished sort of, there were several impoverished situations that made 
what would have been our class a really difficult one for us to finish with the values that my parents wanted to instill. Um, and on top of that, my sister and I also had some deviations from what the school wanted in terms of advancement. So for example, I was really advanced in math, but I could not do the spelling words that they were asking us to do in kindergarten. And my sister had strengths and weaknesses as well that the school system was not set up to help us with and to actually further our education with. So at the end of kindergarten, um, I remember we were walking to the post office in a really tiny town and my mom went, oh, um, you're not going back to school. <laughs> and wow. we were like, what? <laughs> and um, so a few people that my mom had known and was friends with were homeschooling. And that was really the turning point for us where um, we ended up, you know, being homeschooled from that point forward. And with that, you know, obviously my mom wanted to give us the, the best chances of, you know, being successful with socialization because that is and continues to be a real concern for homeschooling families. Yeah. And basically what happened was, you know, over the course of our youth, we ended up in all these different activities, trying to find something that was consistent, trying to find something that was consistent with my family's values. Um, and because we were not fundamentalist in the same way as everybody else was, okay. that posed a challenge because my mom was um, a pretty hardcore feminist for the time. And um, a lot of my family was as well. So for us to be going to these homeschool groups and them teaching, you know, one thing and then my mom being like, eh, you know, there's actually families where the dad, um, the, the mom out earns the dad or the dad doesn't work, which was the case for my family. My dad is disabled. Um, she really tried to bring a lot of nuance to it and she got ostracized and bullied for that on multiple occasions because we couldn't have a big family and that was morally unacceptable in a lot mm -hmm. of the circles that we grew mm -hmm. up in. So, we got a lot of different influences because of that, because my mom tried to um, tried to get us with other homeschoolers and there's almost de facto this culture with other homeschoolers. <laughs> um, and then, you know, in dance, um, we did 4-H, we did Awana, we did a, a numerous amount of things. And so my experience is really different from a lot of other homeschoolers because of that, because I got the best and the worst out of so many different things. Okay. Um, so for example, in dance, um, I, I danced for, let's see, I think it's been 12 or 14 years at this point <laughs> that I've been a dancer. Um, and I don't do like ballet or anything like that. The type of dance that I do is really kind of unusual to people because it's not river dance, but a lot of people call it that. So I danced with a bunch of these middle-aged middle ladies. <laughs> I, my sister and I were all the youngest in our troupe and we would go and do these performances and all this stuff. And I really, really enjoyed it up until about puberty <laughs> because at that point, you know, peripubescent age, um, we would walk out into the crowd and there would be a bunch of junk men spilling their beer everywhere. And at one point, um, my, my troop ended up on a porn site from the dances that we did and they were not risque oh. at all. So as a minor, <laughs> mm -hmm. I had to deal with, you know, sort of emotionally sort of digesting that somebody decided to put us on a porn site. Um, that was extremely traumatic and, um, 
as we would dance and go to these different festivals and things like that, there would be other dancers that maybe had more graceful types of dance and they were thinner or they had different builds and all that stuff. So there was just the pressure within dance as a discipline where, you know, you compare yourself to other girls and um, sometimes they'll compare you for you. Um, <laughs> so there was that. Um, there also is some relatives that uh, eating disorders run um, within their branch of the family. And so there was a high propensity because of that. Um, in addition to some home life situations that also impacted that where, you know, anything that causes scarcity can really start to impact you and start leaning you towards self-harm sort of behaviors. So things like um, cutting, anorexia, um, abusing drugs, abusing alcohol, things like that. When you do not have enough of what you're supposed to have, like the bare minimum as a child, um, you start sort of subconsciously focusing on what you can control um, in order to procure, procure those resources, whether it be time or attention or, you know, specifically male attention or what have you or approval. And so a lot of what happened for me and my peers growing up in these different situations was just there was an issue with scarcity that was you know furthered by whatever culture we were in in particular with the modesty purity culture type culture it was you know well we can't control what we wear like we're not allowed to control what we wear and you know we're well into puberty at this point so at least we can make sure that once we get married it'll kind of be a surprise that we're in good shape for our husband because <laughs> you can't see anything now <laughs> and so so there's a lot of different facets to mine in particular, but a lot of times it just comes down to scarcity and then controlling what you can. And then by controlling what you can, you get this rush of neurotransmitters when you like hit a certain goal or you, you know, try a new thing or whatever. And so then you get addicted because you don't have that, you know, platform of safety and community and all that kind of stuff. And that just ends up consuming you. So I started out at 105 pounds when I was 12 and we went to the doctor, I remember, and that's how I found out that I weighed that much. And I just lost it because I knew this other girl who was significantly taller than me and just extremely thin and athletic. And she was 105 pounds and I'm 5'2". <laughs> so I knew this like giant girl that was the same weight as me and that really impacted me a lot. And so that, among some other factors, really was kind of the nail in the coffin for me to develop the full-blown eating disorder where I wasted away to like 79 pounds. Wow. You good? Oh, yeah. So can you, you were, again, the first person that talked to me about purity culture. Can you tell me what purity culture is and give our listeners, actually, we had a listener tell us recently I have no idea what purity culture is. So can you give us a little definition of what purity culture is? Yeah, so purity culture is kind of a highly contested thing in terms of definition because it really mm. depends on who you talk to on a political spectrum. So 
In addition to there being a purity movement, which I personally define as true love waits, silver ring thing, it's government funded. It was specifically made to bring down teen pregnancy rates. And that was it. Um, it was encouraging kids not to have sex until they get married. So purity culture um, is and different. Can you, can you remind me when, when was that? The government did fund was, a bunch yes. of evangelical initiatives in... It was like the 80s. Mm -hmm. um, it, I believe it was, yeah, it was the 80s because it was well before I was born. That's one of the things that people are really shocked at is I am on the late end of having had any exposure to stuff like this um, mm -hmm. in terms of those things. But yeah, the, I believe it was Silver Ring thing and I believe it was the 80s when they started that initiative. Mm -hmm. um, and so after that started... And there's, there's a little bit of contestation in terms of whether or not things were side by side with that movement or if that movement was co-opted. But um, you also have purity culture, which is kind of a ugly stepsister of that movement insofar as it goes beyond trying to bring down teen pregnancy rates by telling kids to wait until they're married to have sex and into the realm of you have to marry your first crush. You have to not hold hands before you get married or hug or kiss or do anything else that's an alternative form of sex. And in addition to that, you know, you're not supposed to have a private conversation before you get married. And then that kind of gets into courtship culture territory. Um, hmm. But there's a lot of extra biblical rules that this movement, um, it, it's sort of their manifesto, if you will. And it, it goes beyond just, well, the Bible says to wait to have sex until you're married. So there's a lot of legalism, a lot of religious abuse. Um, I personally believe that there were some figureheads um, or some, some people behind the scenes of the movement that used purity rings as a way to mark easy prey for um, predators, in particular pedophiles. Really? Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> And that would make sense because it's so stupid. Like we've talked about this on the podcast that part of purity culture, I mean, there's so much messed up about purity culture, right? And, you know, the history is like the government put a bunch of money into let's try and get these kids, let's calm down the sixties and the sexual revolution and try and encourage them to wait till to marriage, which is like not a bad idea necessarily. Mm -hmm. um, and then somehow it got mixed in with religion. It was another one of these terrible situations where government and religion doesn't work well. <laughs> when those two get together, people were getting paid to promote this message and then it got all religious and weird. And, um, but yeah, part of, and then you get into this, this weird idea of objectifying bodies and, and uh, putting all the pressure on the woman for how the man, what's going on inside the man's head. But also, there's no education about consent. There's no education about keeping yourself safe. There's no education about what, what constitutes a rape. In fact, you're told you know, to submit to your authorities. In most religious contexts, you're told that you can never tell the family secrets or the church secrets or what's most important is going to heaven and having the right ideas in your head. So we've talked on this podcast before about how it does create... Um, like the ideal victim that doesn't doesn't know how to defend herself and doesn't know how to report and then protects the abusers and the abusers like people circle the wagons around these big around 
whether it's a small time pastor or whether it's a mega church pastor, they're, they're trained to circle the wagons and protect them. So that's, that's infuriating. It, it just makes me so fucking mad. I hope you don't mind. I swear sometimes. It's okay. <laughs> there aren't Christ, good Christian words to express it. Um, have you read the book pure by Linda Klein? Linda K. K. Klein. K. Klein. Yes. Yeah. I have not. Um, I, for the last year, really, I've stepped away from a lot of what I was doing. Mm. Um, a lot of personal reasons, but also, um, I, I was getting, uh, sexually harassed, um, by religious people online. Um, and there were just some other things going on. Um, there was a lot going on and I, I felt that it was time to step back and, um, be with my family and focus solely on my family. So I have not been in the game for a while. Um, I have Rachel Welsher's new book. Um, it is talking back to purity culture. And Mm. that is the only thing that I've even attempted to read since, I believe the last year and a half. So I know of Ms. Klein, but I have not read her book. (laughs) The only reason I raise that, I want to get back to your childhood and I want to talk about kind of this, when, when the trouble started and you mentioned your puberty Mm -hmm. Um, and in Ms. Klein's book, she talks about like a line that stood out to me from that is that her, Um, coming of age should have been like a funeral because Mm -hmm. like fundamentalism works great when you're a a sweet little girl that's dancing around and singing songs to Jesus and you have, you know, rules and order, but it it doesn't feel oppressive, but all of a sudden your body changes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, many cultures, Bruxy Cavey is a, I just had him on a podcast. Uh, He's a pastor up here. He's the only person I've heard. He's a very unorthodox pastor. And he says a lot of cultures, when a woman has, you know, comes of age, they have a celebration because it's wonderful. You're becoming a woman. And in our culture, I mean, it's unexpected. There isn't often education. And then it becomes all this purity culture gets dumped on you. All of a sudden you become objectified. All of a sudden you become a sex object. And all of a sudden it's just, it can be traumatic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and you just mentioned that being, you know, having your video put on a porn site when you had zero intention of, you didn't even, probably even uh know what arousing a man was at that point yes (laughs) but can you can you tell me a little bit more about that funeral and what it felt like to all of a sudden crash into this world of of men objectifying you yeah absolutely so i was kind of being thrown into that took a couple different phases. The first one um, was actually getting my menstrual cycle. I was not prepared. (laughs) Oh, I was not prepared and um, blessed. Did anybody talk to you about that beforehand? What would happen? My mom did a little bit and I think she thought what she said was sufficient. Um, And to her credit, I'm not sure what else she really could have said without traumatizing me because I was very easily traumatized when it came to sexual things. Mm-hmm. Um, but I definitely was not prepared and um, she wasn't feeling well that day. <laughs> so I came to her and I was like, 
And she was like, you're okay. It just means you can have babies now. I think she had a really bad migraine. She had those a lot when I was younger. And that was the extent to which she could really do much that day. And so (laughs) that was about it. And I was like, oh, great. Okay. So now I can get pregnant at any point for any reason. Um, (laughs) It's not good. (laughs) Um, But uh, uh, after that, you know, um, just growing hair was not a good time for me. I was very traumatized. I did not know that would happen. Excuse me one moment. Yes, sir. What is it? Um, so yeah, so there was the body hair. And then after that, um, very shortly after that, actually, I had an incident with one of the families that I knew, um, growing up and basically, long story short was a male member of the family assaulted a female of the family and they were siblings and um she was blamed for it and um even after you tell me can you tell me what was said to her when you say she was blamed for it what what was said to her um i believe or about her well, yeah, um, it was said that she sassed him too much and she deserved it and she asked for it through misbehavior and um, not falling in line. Um, it's a lot more complex of a situation than I can really talk of it yeah. just because um, because of the way things played out and because mm-hmm. it's not fully my story insofar as I can say how it affected yeah. me, but I can't say how it affected her. But um, yeah, she she was basically painted out as though um, because of her rebellious spirit, you know, she deserved this. And even after this went to court and they were convicted of having done this, um, the judge still put her back in this home. Hmm. And he lost his job over that case, um, rightly so. <laughs> mm-hmm. But it still stands, stood and still stands as a testimony to me and everyone else who was affected by it that they can get away with it and that justice will be slow in coming if it comes at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and so at that point, I became very paranoid. Um, I was scared to leave my house. We did have a registered sex offender that was a couple blocks from our house. Um, and my mom consistently warned us, you know, not to go near that house. Um, and so I started, you know, seeing the boogeyman everywhere where, um, you know, she dressed modestly. She did all this stuff. She worked very hard and still when it came time, you know, she was blamed. And so I was like, well, I just have to avoid this entirely because obviously I'm not going to have any way to fight for myself if this should happen to me. And that Christmas, my aunt bought me a taser (laughs) because I was that bad off mentally. Um, And I, you know, I carried a pocket knife. I also had um, a gun that I uh, would use for hunting and things like that. And I still didn't feel safe. Mm -hmm. Buddy. So I want to just respond to what you said. And I just try and say this in podcasts as often as I can to anybody who has um, been abused, especially sexually, whatever you did, you are not, it is not your fault. And people will tell you that it's your fault. And I have been, a, I have, um, I've struggled with PTSD and anybody who, who has struggled with PTSD knows that one of the primary symptoms is guilt. 
over what happened. Even if what happened is not guilt inducing, you can feel like it was your fault. And that is a biological response. Uh, you try and fix things by saying it was your fault and you want to try and figure out what you could have done differently. And that can really uh, be capitalized on by abusers to try and force victims to even feel more guilty. And I just want to say, you did not deserve it. Who, who, whoever's listening, if something happened, you did not deserve it. It was not your fault. Um, if somebody did a criminal offense against you, it was a criminal offense. It was, had zero to do with what you did. But unfortunately, when people are told this message that the way that you dresses affects how other men are going to think, which is not a biblical message. Jesus said, if your eye causes you to stumble, you should pluck it out because it is better for you to go into heaven with one less eye than to go into hell. Jesus had a message to men about how they should deal with uh, their sexual problems, starting with themselves and starting with them not lusting and doing what they need to do to control their own sexuality. And somehow that has gotten twisted into, we need to control women. So purity culture was telling you this message that you needed to try and control your environment, protect yourself by how you dress and then where you walk. And then even to have weapons on your person to protect yourself, which is more pressure than anybody should have to have. And it led to the situation where um, people looking at you would have said, well, there is a middle-class white girl with a functional family and good Christian values. And yet you were living through a war zone you, and your body was in crisis mode. And we've talked about that on the podcast too. In fact, we just recorded a podcast on how when you're in crisis mode, um, if the danger is more powerful than you, but slower, you'll run. Mm -hmm. If the danger is, um, is less strong than you, but faster than you'll fight. But if it is both stronger and faster than you, then you freeze. freeze. And, then, and then that's when you get these terrible symptoms of post-traumatic stress, of flashbacks, of, of internalizing, and you can get Stockholm syndrome, you can get trauma bonds, you can get all sorts of things. Um, because you're, you're trying to figure out a creative solution to end the tension and to keep yourself safe. Mm -hmm. And for you, you've already mentioned this, for you, the solution was anorexia, which mm -hmm. somebody looking from the outside would say, why is somebody that has enough food not eating it to the point where it is causing physical harm to them? It doesn't make mm -hmm. sense, but trauma doesn't make sense. None of this, none of this makes sense, right? But it makes sense. And I can tell that you've done a lot of research and you've, and you want to become an educator on this and help other people. Um, can you explain to us, well, walk me through, how did anorexia start being part of your journey? And then as we go, I'd, I'd love to hear more about um, the science of that and how that makes sense. But how did that become a part of your journey at the beginning? Is you're a young girl trying to control your environment and trying to keep yourself safe? Yeah, so I think... I had um, a bit of anxiety um, just from the very beginning because I can recall when I was my son's age, he's about five at this point, um, I would hide food in drawers um, <clears throat> because I 
was worried that, you know, there wouldn't be access to that food again anytime soon. So it was things like um, chocolate or packaged foods, things like that. Um, <clears throat> my parents did the best they could to provide for us, but because my dad was disabled, um, mm-hmm. there was a bit of food scarcity. I, I don't okay. know that anything was ever said. I just knew that, you know, finances change. Mm-hmm. So because we grew up in kind of a bit of financial instability, not to the point that it would have impacted, you know, some children, it kind of depends on the predisposition. And that's something I've learned over the course of things as people are like, well, did your sister have this level of trauma? Did your peers have this level mm-hmm. of trauma? And I think it really depends on the person because it does. Um, yeah. You have different predispositions, you have different life experiences, even growing up in the same household. And the way I have heard it explained is that a lot of trauma depends on what your expectations of the world were to begin with. Mm. So if you are already kind of thinking, well, things are in flux and, you know, something might happen, who knows? Um, I personally, at a younger age, was pretty insulated. (laughs) So anything that came my way was a harder blow to me than it was to other people. And I also was extremely religious from a very young age, which was markedly different from my peers. Um, I remember, you know, having sermons out in the the little clubhouse in our backyard to the dirt. (laughs) And my sister didn't do that. Um, But I was very aware that Jesus loved me also from a very young age. So there was just differences. But when it came to, you know, things being in flux, I didn't have the resilience to deal with that, that some of my peers and my sister did. Um, So it started kind of from just having a a different predisposition where I was more sensitive to things and I knew that things were in flux that I didn't really want to be in flux. Um, And so I had a little bit of scarcity from that and started, you know, food hoarding really, really young. Um, And then as things progressed and I kind of got into puberty, I did not like that my body was changing. I couldn't do anything about it. I went from being a peer to my male friends, to a Jezebel, to my male friends overnight. Um, I Can you did... explain that a bit more? What do you mean sure. by a Jezebel? So, you know, we used to go and play and wrestle and like tackle each other and hit each other and all that kind of stuff. We were very rough and tumble kids, my peers and I were. Mm. And it didn't matter that I was a girl. I'm sure they went easier on me because I was, but we still wrestled. We still like tore each other's fingernails off, you know, (laughs) like we were rough on each other and it didn't matter. Um, And then all of a sudden, you know, my hips start changing. I start growing boobs and I'm like, uh, wait a minute. (laughs) I don't like this. And so I would dissociate because I couldn't handle my body changing without my knowledge or consent. And Mm. so I wasn't aware. My mom had to force me to wear bras (laughs) well after I should have started wearing bras because I was not aware that I had boobs. I was like, no, I'm not. I just, I, I'm, no, I'm, I'm going to be exempt from this. I'm not doing this. (laughs) And so I had a really hard time with that. And, um, I don't even want to, I don't even want to think about that, but, 
Um, I just kept acting as though nothing was changing because I didn't want it to. I didn't want to be treated differently. I wasn't interested in the whole, you know, male, female dynamics on that level. I was like, no, uh, I'm not ready. And um, so I had to be forced to wear a bra. I did not like that at all. It basically made me have panic attacks 24 seven um, and still does <laughs> actually. But I do have body dysmorphia. Um, I think that is a bit separate from anorexia as well that I don't even know how you would categorize it. It's just- What I is the definition? What is body dysmorphia? So I believe, I don't know the clinical definition for me when I say body dysmorphia, I mean, there is a cognitive dissonance between how I think my body should look and how my body does look. Okay. Um, and that for me changes day to day. Um, it used to be a much, much worse, <laughs> but uh, over the last year, I've really been able to heal quite a bit, but um, puberty was really, really rough there. And so I had some specific comments told to me during that in terms of, hey, your bra strap is showing um, that mm. would like by male parent, like male peers, parents and things like that. And they would like go and just grab you and adjust it, um, which was extremely traumatic for me because I was like, I did something wrong. <laughs> I was very sensitive to criticism. And so, you know, overnight I went from wrestling with them and all that kind of stuff to them being kind of scared to be anywhere near me for fear of either of us getting in trouble. Um, and, you know, a lot of gothardism was injected at that point into our normal circles where, you know, you weren't allowed to have a private conversation with boys and all that kind of stuff. And so it really was extremely traumatic because I basically got half of my peer group and friends cut out overnight in terms of who I could interact with and who I can consider a friend and all that. Um, and I, I basically was made to feel like I was a danger to them um, over nothing that was in my control. <laughs> right. So, and this yeah, is a this is a thread, a theme I'm hearing, things that are out of control, like out of your control. Yes. And you want to yes. protect yourself, but even your body becomes your own enemy. And you're trying yes. to be as safe as possible from these, you know, sexual predators and sexual thoughts that you have you've been trained to see only in a negative way that, yes. you know, lustful yes. thoughts and sex is only negative. There's no positive there. You want to protect yourself. And then your body joins the enemy side, making you, yeah. you know, more of a target. Um, yes. So no wonder yeah, that you're you basically, would, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> well, just no wonder you would, you would start to have a negative or, or a complex relation, well, a negative relationship with your body. And you mentioned body yeah. dysmorphia where you're not communicating with your body. You're not getting accurate messages from your body because you don't want to hear what it has to say. Yes. Yes. And I, it was very much, and I mean, I don't have many days like this anymore, um, but it was very much like being imprisoned in your own skin because you can't change it. Um, you don't want the signals. Um and then, you know, randomly people will say something that snaps you back and there's nothing you can do about it. And mm -hmm. if you have a panic attack, they're going to think you're a psycho, you know? Um, right. So there wasn't, yeah, it, it's, it's a, a no-win situation. And then, um, like I said, I, I went to a camp where the girls were comparing weights and heights and realized that... <clears throat> I was shorter 
and heavy as the girl that was really tall and thin. And then, you know, I went to the pediatrician and was told how much I weighed and the pediatrician never made a big deal out of it. But I was also told, you know, that I was disgusting because my thighs touched when I sat down, which I only have like recently realized is a completely normal thing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But there was just things, there was some very mean spirited comments um, coming from all over the place. Like I had adults telling me that I had peers telling me things like that. Um, And, you know, there was also kind of the prosperity gospel of the church in terms of health Mm. stuff where you you have to do that sort of thing. I wasn't exposed to a whole heck of a lot of that, but um, it was enough of a, a cursory preview of it that it was like okay well everybody thinks this (laughs) um so at that point um i i was very interested in one particular boy and i don't think his parents have ever liked me (laughs) but um i really wanted to you know do the best that i could to be the best suitor I guess um there and so I started losing weight and I dressed very modestly which is makes it very easy to cover up anorexia like normal anorexic girls will cover up but modesty culture just gives you an excuse um to where it's not abnormal um Mm -hmm. it's just expected at that age so it's very easy to hide a lot of people fall through the cracks that way. And um, so I started covering up to try to make everybody happy. And I lost weight so that, you know, once I was actually at the point in my life that we could ostensibly get married, you know, he would be happy so he wouldn't leave because I, you know, heard all this talk about, well, this mom's really let herself go. No wonder her husband cheated on her and all that sort right. of thing, all that bull crap. Again, um, <laughs> again, the woman has to control the man through her actions. Again, this yes. message. Yeah. So I went from 105 pounds when I was 12 to consistently maintaining below that. And by the time I was 14, I was 79 pounds at my eighth grade graduation and um, I almost passed out and there was a nurse there and she took my pulse and she wanted to call an ambulance. She was like, I don't know what's wrong with her, but something's really wrong. (laughs) I hadn't eaten that day (laughs) or the day before that or the day before that. Um, So it, it got to the point that I couldn't hide it anymore. Um, And that was in a way how I started talking to my husband on a more regular basis because he had come to my church to um, learn Greek from my pastor. He was in, he was trying to pursue a courtship with this girl and for specific reasons, he wanted to learn Greek in order to secure that courtship. And that didn't work out. And Um, around the same time, some things really went south and I lost almost all of my face-to-face connections with people. And, um, you know, in the year before that, I was working in childcare and things like that and just kind of volunteering. I kind of had to, but um, I really didn't see any other people very much. Um, I think the only thing we were doing at that point is 4-H, which is once a month. Um, and maybe dance class, which is once a week, but with a bunch of older ladies. So no peer interaction. And I, at that point had gone through so much depression and anxiety, um, and trauma that I had already tried to kill myself once. Um, and I 
ended up realizing that my heart was consistently not beating correctly. And then shortly after that, I grew a bunch of white hair all over my skin, which is um, one of the stages of anorexia in which your body decides decides that you're freezing to death. Um, Mm. So I had all this white hair all over me and my heart wasn't beating correctly and my body had started cannibalizing my lungs. So if I didn't eat over 500 calories a day, I would constantly be unable to breathe. Um, And I had typically been eating about 200 calories a day. Um, So at that point, you know, I knew who my husband was and I knew that he was a dietitian. And so I started talking to him about my situation, saying that it was somebody else. So-and-so that I know, I know has an eating disorder. Yes, asking for a friend. And he saw right through it, but he didn't say anything. Um, He gave me Hillary McFarland's Quivering Daughters. um, Mm. And I snuck it home. (laughs) And I read most of it. Um, And my mom read it and gave it back to me. so it wasn't exactly contraband, but um, I I read it. It helped a lot. He gave me a BMI calculator to give to my friend, um, and mm. he eventually I you know came clean, and I was like, I'm I'm scared. I'm gonna die at this point. <laughs> and he was like, uh, Well, I can help. Um, and so at that point, the anorexia was so severe. A lot of people don't realize this. With anorexia, it's not just about caloric intake. Um, when you are anorexic, you can have bloating from not eating and you can have bloating during recovery. So, um, there's also a certain component to which it's not just counting calories. It's not just exercising. It's also about, you know, the bloating and it's also about anything you intake. And so at that point, even though I knew better, I was scared to drink water and I was scared to shower because I was scared that my body was going to absorb the water through my skin. Um, It was that severe. And so um, I told him that and he started feeding me and giving me water from his, like he would give me a water bottle so that I didn't have to touch it. Um, And he would feed me raisins so that I didn't have to touch them. And then slowly I would like eat them out of his hand. And so he spent all day on Sunday from the time that church was out until the evening when it got dark, feeding me raisins one by one and giving me sips of water one by one. And, um, and then we moved on to other things. He was really scared that I was going to have refeeding syndrome, which he didn't tell me until like this past year, but he, what is um, refeeding syndrome? Uh, it's a really dangerous, um, thing that can happen with anorexia where once you actually start eating foods again, your body, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure of what all can happen. I just know it can be deadly. Um, because I think you're, I'm not, like I said, I'm not entirely sure, but I think it's that your body's not used to it anymore and you have to be very careful. Um, it's, it's something that I haven't looked up because I wouldn't be able to handle it. Yeah, <laughs> um, cause I was so close, um, at that point, but, um, we, we went up to like chicken and, and sweet potatoes and things like that. And then ultimately, you know, I had a lot of, of bloating during that, <laughs> like my face would be puffy from cortisol and my whole body would kind of be ballooning mm-hmm. just because it was trying to readjust. Um, and so, we did that, I don't know how long, months and months and months, probably a year. 
of, you know, working up with that. And uh, I developed allergic reactions to some foods and I'm still not sure if that was because of um, different nutritional deficiencies. I expect so because I've been able to correct a lot of them at this point and I can eat a lot more things. But um, it was an extremely, extremely scary time. And a, a lot of it, you know, he would be feeding me and all this stuff, but we would also be talking about doctrinal things like whether women have to submit to every man that tells them that they have to submit, which is what I grew up with. Um, and so throughout this, he was ministering to me physically and ministering to me mentally and ministering to me spiritually. And I had um, a safe place at that point. Um, and that- What a great man. Yes. Yes. He is incredible. So that has been my recovery. I, I made a lot of decisions on my own to get out of that culture. Um, I left when I was 16. Um, and I, I did a lot of things on my own, but without having somebody, someone that was safe, um, I'm not sure if I would be alive right now. Um, and so I also started having medical problems around that time from the stress. So for the last decade, I've had PCOS and it's only been in the last year that I stopped feeling the cyst structure. And I went in to get an ultrasound um, and I had been doing a lot of different work, trauma work and all that kind of stuff. Can you say again what you had? PTOS? polycystic ovarian syndrome. So okay. it's where um, you get cysts on your ovaries and they rupture. Um, and I only went to the emergency room the first couple times because um, they couldn't do anything. Um, they wanted to take my ovaries when I was 14 and I refused um, because the scarring was so bad at that point that they thought I was going to be infertile. And, um, after my son was born, it got so severe that, um, I had zero progesterone in my body and, um, I had 24, um, cysts between my ovaries plus tons that were just like the size of sand. And they said that they were weighing my ovaries down so much that they could see it on the scans. And, um, I was told by varying alternative doctors that that was a direct result of specific types of trauma that I had been through. And of course I thought they were Looney Tunes. And then, you know, this past year, year and a half, I've really been working on a lot of things. And about, mm, I'd say three or four months ago, I went in and got a scan done because I, I hadn't felt a cyst rupture in a while. And I'm laying there, they're looking at everything and I'm saying, yeah, I've had this, I've had this, I've had this, this should have this amount of scar tissue. Um, and you know, the last time they were checked was, you know, like a year ago and I had 24 on each ovary and, uh, this guy was looking at me like I had two heads <laughs> mm -hmm. and, um, he was like, I'm going to have multiple doctors look at it. I'm not going to have them charge you for it, but I'm just going to have multiple people look at this for you. And I was like, okay, thanks. You know, not thinking anything of it. And then the next week I got the email with the results and they could not find a single shred of scar tissue. They were like, we can't tell that this has ever been there. And I had brought my old scans with me. So he saw them. <laughs> mm. um, and I was like, I've never heard of this happening. Um, what's the deal? And he was like, I don't know, but congratulations. <laughs> mm. um, so I firmly believe that 
it was part of the PTSD, the CPTSD that I have in the trauma that was causing them in the first place. And I think Mm -hmm. that doing all of the work that I have in the last year or two to work on the trauma is what's led to my body actually repairing. Um, I think, you know, you have the freeze response and we don't really think about the freeze response a lot because all we ever hear about is fight or flight. Yeah. Um, but the freeze response does actually have, and, and so does fight and flight, honestly, because you have cortisol levels that are abnormal all the time with either of those things. But when it came to the freeze response, I actually had muscle armoring in like across my body. So I'm having migraines, I'm having tension headaches. Um, I am having my lymph nodes not drain. I had a scan done when I was very, very sick and bedridden for a while. And they were like, none of your lymph nodes are draining. We've never seen this before. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I do all the things that are supposed to fix that and nothing does. Um, and so I've learned that, you know, seizing your entire body and everything around your organs um, can have a huge impact. And we just don't know that much about it. So you have all these instances of autoimmunity and all these health problems in these people coming out of purity culture and these people in CPTSD. And we're just now learning the long-term effects of these sorts of things. Um, so, you know, I, I live with the long-term effects of anorexia of having to be very diligent about my, my vitamins and all that kind of stuff and, and very diligent to do my self-care so that I don't have any kind of relapse. But at the same time, I also am having to learn to deal with things that I can't control because on top yeah. of the things that anorexia has caused, I also have to deal with the health problems that CPTSD has caused. Yeah. Um, and I don't, I have not seen a lot out there on actually dealing with the things that you can't control because coming out of environments like that, you can't control flashbacks. You can't control, you know, how other people feel about what you say um, and about what's happened to you and all that kind of stuff. And I, I just am very thankful for the time that I got to take off to process things. But, you know, just the other day, my husband told me, um, that he actually did think I was going to die. And I had known that, but nobody had said that up until that point. Um, And it was so good to just be able to stare the worst of the truth in the face. Yeah. And like, I'm just so interested in a sad sort of way, because this is exactly where my wife and I are right now, um, trying to deconstruct and, and just find health, just find health. Um, and you mentioned CPTSD, which is complex PTSD. Uh, through our World War One, World War Two, and then the Vietnam War, there's been a, a huge amount of advances understanding what post-traumatic stress syndrome is when people are in a life-threatening situation and they can't get out. It fucks with their brains to where you can be messed up for the rest of your life because of what happened. And then as um, the, body, the book, The Body Keeps the Score, really lays this out extremely well. It's kind of the, the go-to book for a lot of people. It's very accessible, but extremely well-researched. Well, uh, um, as people studied that and then started looking at other complex situations, such as uh, children that were in extreme 
you know, domestic abuse or raised in cults, they started seeing this is exactly the same thing, only it's complex because it wasn't just one event. It was a lifetime of events. And that's mm -hmm. where complex uh, post-traumatic stress syndrome comes in that you're discussing. Mm -hmm. And I'm just really interested in this um, interaction between um, your religious upbringing and the trauma, because um, again, that's where we're at. And what I'm hearing again and again is this idea of control. And I wonder if, like, I, I just get this image of a young girl that was tensed and felt like she could control things. If you think of an accident, you know, the worst thing you can do is clench because, mm -hmm. and that's why the drunk driver always lives and nobody else does because the drunk driver is relaxed. But that's our body's response as we clench. And then that makes the trauma so much worse. Do you think there was a message within um, or a, a bunch of messages that you can control things? Do you think that was part of your fundamentalist upbringing or your religious upbringing? Instead of there are things in your life that are out of control, but here's how you can make your peace with that. Do you think exactly. that was part of it? And what, what sort of promises do you think you were given that you could control your world that, that ended up being false promises? Yeah, so you have a bit of prosperity gospel in terms of if you do all of these things right, if you don't kiss or hug or hold hands or have sex before you get married, you will have an amazing marriage. Um, that is going to be one of the most prominent things, uh, an example of what we were told that we could control. Obviously, that's incorrect. <laughs> and mm -hmm. a lot of people have found that out. But you also are not only taught that you can control, but are expected to control the responses of men around you. Um, there's a lot of boundary issues that come out with fundamentalism in terms of who is responsible for what. Yes. And that obviously leads to a lot of trauma. Um, and then there's also the matter of being expected to control non-believers where mm -hmm. you are, you have this put on you that you're supposed to tell them this and they're going to react this way or this way and no other way where they're either going to accept or deny what you've said. And it's your responsibility to convert them and all that kind of stuff instead of, you know, rightly understanding that's the Holy spirit that convicts in any instance. Um, so there was a lot of not only being told that you could control things, but that you were obligated morally to control your peers, to control people that were outside of your circle, to control your future mm -hmm. when that's not the case. And there was no, no talk of understanding things outside of our control and coping mechanisms for things outside of our control because everything was supposed to be controllable. Mm -hmm. um, which goes directly against free will <laughs> yeah. in every aspect. Yeah. And you weren't told, okay, people have free will. Things are, are going to be somewhat chaotic, but there is a certain way that you can be okay with yourself and you will be enough for the future. And um, here's how to, um, you know, if somebody crosses your boundaries, you have rights and you need to, uh, and there are police and there is a legal system and you can keep records and you can report people and, um, you know, just all these things about consent that we're not told, boundaries that we're not told, trusting the legal system that we're not told. Uh, these are all things that I've just become so passionate about. Yeah. Um, in our previous podcast that unfortunately um, died somewhere in cyberspace. <laughs> it was um, lost. Yeah. You had mentioned a 
you said something just uh, off the cuff. You said that you knew that you were dying. In fact, you knew that you were killing yourself. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and you've mentioned a little bit about the terrible toll that uh, it takes on the body as the body starts to cannibalize its own vital organs, the lungs and, and other things. But in the previous podcast, you said you didn't care because it was basically a long-term suicide attempt. Yes. Can you talk more about that and just this, um, what was it that now as an adult, looking back at that young girl, at the time of your life when you should have been at the beginning and excited about the future, what was it that took away all that joy and just made that young girl think I would rather die um, than live? So what happened was we were involved with a lot of different groups. And at that age, um, around 12 to 14, I lost every single peer that I had interacted with from the time I was like six. Um, The details of that are obviously very complicated. There was multiple groups and it's a lot to go over, but essentially I had lost everything. I didn't have any peers that I interacted with on a regular basis. And I had nightmares consistently that they were in danger. Um, which ended up being accurate. Um, A lot of them were in danger, um, either from themselves or from other people. Um, And multiple of them also tried to kill themselves within that time frame. Mm. So I had one suicide attempt following that. And then um, after that, it became a matter of, you know, well, if all these things change just in case I ever get to see them again, I want things to stay the same. I don't want to change. I know everything else has changed, but I don't want to change. And maybe that'll be enough to fix it. Maybe that'll be enough to fix the fact that a bunch of children had to deal with people doing illegal offenses, getting away with it. And we're punished for even so much as saying anything about it. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe it'll be enough that even though we've all known each other our entire childhood and now don't ever get to see each other and have zero contact because none of us have phones, none of us have email addresses, maybe it'll be enough when we get back to each other for me to be the same. And um, trying to find one thing you can control. Yeah. And so at that point, that was kind of one of the ways that I got into it. And then when I got back, I saw that they were gone, that they were just gone. Um, Some of them had cut scars, which I didn't know what it was at the time, but I kind of had like the spiritual sense of something's really wrong and I was right. Mm -hmm. Um, And so what I came back to was a bunch of children that had aged well beyond their years and there was still nothing I could do. Um, and nothing that I had done worked, um, and everything was different and that was it. Like our childhood was over, um, and our lives as we had known them was over. And the only thing that we had to look forward to was dying so that it would be over. Um, because so many of us were facing things that we couldn't talk about, um, and still can't talk about. Um, 
And there was just no way out. Some of these girls in particular were expected to stay home their entire lives. They were never getting out. There was no way that their parents were going to let them get married. That was going to be the rest of their life. Um, and there was no way to escape the culture that we had gone through um, while escaping, like while keeping the family intact. Like Hillary McFarland, for instance, she had to leave her home and left behind tons of siblings that she didn't get any contact with after that point. And it was literally choosing life or choosing her family because that was the position that they put her in. Yeah. And, you know, there's, there's so many different ways that that can play out, especially across genders, but we all suffered so many things at that point that once we got back together and I saw that everybody was the walking dead, um, at that point, it was just, okay, well, I guess I'm just going to follow this same path um, until I die because they can't stop me this way. If they catch me with, you know, some kind of, I don't want to be triggering, but, you know, any, any quick instrument of death, let us say, then they could stop me. But they can't stop me if my heart already has enough damage that there's nothing the medical doctors can do. Um. And so that was the point that I was at until my husband came around. Um, I actually hated my husband at first because he was a homeschool boy. He was much older than me. So I was like, okay, great. This college student waltzes in and we're all supposed to fawn over him because he was homeschooled too. I don't think so. Um, and then, you know, I actually got to interact with him and all that stuff and realized that he was very different from anybody I had ever known before and continues to be very different from anybody I had ever known before. And so, you know, he would sit even before I had started telling him things and just tell me stories and actually spend time on me and actually value me as a human being um, and actually care about me as a stranger. And that was something that was foreign to me. I was useful insofar as I was obedient. And that was it. Yeah. Um, I just feel like I need to have an emotional break. I'm uh, no, I mean, <laughs> I feel good. like crying for a little bit here. Uh, I just want to connect, connect with you and just say what you went through was so, so, so wrong. And just to clarify for listeners, this is, we're not talking about a cult off in the desert. We're not talking about, you know, this is something that's been really frustrating with my wife. She starts to share and then people are like, oh, well, that was a, that, I'm sorry that happened to you. That was a really extreme situation. But this happens all the time with these families that are model Christian families that, you know, you look at them and you're like, wow, why can't my kids sit through church like that? Or why don't my kids all behave so wonderfully? Or why aren't my kids all dressed so modestly? Maybe I should get into this teaching and, and do all these things. But then when you listen to the kids that live through this, they say, it was hell. And I'm still trying to figure that what the fuck happened to me. And um, I just want to say as loud as possible that that is not okay. That is not okay. And um, it's just really wrong. Um, and there's a term, like even psychologists, you'll, you'll go to a counselor or a doctor because you have one symptom and they'll be confused because 
uh, and I was just listening to, just yesterday I was listening to the Modesty Files, listening to um, Liz and IBLP part one. And she talked about how she developed, I think it was Crohn's disease. It was a, um, yes. an uh, autoimmune disorder. Your immune system goes crazy sometimes in extreme levels of stress. And this is unfortunately one disease that it doesn't stop. Um, but she was saying she had this long journey of going to these doctors and them saying, you're the worst situation I've ever seen. I've never seen something like this. And um, in books like uh, The Boy Who Was Raised as a Dog, uh, psychologists talk about how like, if kids are raised in absolute terror, they can have really strange things happen, such as a young girl just doesn't grow or um, you know, the, the digestive system just doesn't work or all these sorts of strange things. But the reality is, and what, what the, the scientific community is slowly waking up to through religious trauma syndrome research is that religion can do this to people. It can, it can really, really, really fuck people up on multiple levels to where they are just hurting so much, not just from, from one thing, but from multiple overlapping things to where it causes, um, tremendous tremendous pain and we need to we we need to not just slap a sticker on that and say well you had a little bit of trauma so you know get over it pray to jesus and 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 here's the quick fix we need to we need to become aware of the fact that some of our ideas and some of our teachings are so wrong that they they hurt people more than if they went through a war that's how bad some of our teachings are and it's kids that are primarily suffering with this. That's why we're um, called soldiers for Jesus. <laughs> can I ask you to give us, because you mentioned cutting twice, and I think that there is, uh, you've, you've done a lot of research on this and, you, and you're um, a self-educated expert in your field. Can you educate us on cutting? Because that, just briefly, how can you become addicted to something like anorexia or develop a, a biological uh, necessity to cut? How can your body need something like that or feel a compulsion towards that when it would seem to be antithetical to what a body should be desiring? Right. So in terms, I'll, I'll talk about anorexia first and then I can talk about cutting. Um, I have to disclaim that I have not personally successfully cut in my life. Um, I have had the urge in the past, but I have not done that. So um, I just want to put that out there so that there's not any confusion or, you know, me feeling like I'm speaking out of turn. Um, that is my background there. But um in terms of anorexia, basically what happens is you get this buildup of, I have to do something, I have to do something, I have to do something. Your body is like screaming at you um, because everything is wrong and it needs some kind of outlet. It's like damming up water and then it finally busting where the longer it's dammed up that there's all these things going on and there's nothing you can do, the harder it's going to hit when the dam finally breaks. So with anorexia, basically what you have um, is sort of this purge reflex, if you will. Okay. Um, but a purge reflex in the way that I'm describing it is just releasing the valve. So for some people, 
actual purging would be that. Um, for me as an anorexic, um, it wasn't so much the restricting calories. That really wasn't what hit the dopamine or, you know, any other kind of neurotransmitter. For me, what it was was stepping on the scale and seeing that had gone down. That was the rush. Mm. That was the release. Um, I also was very addicted to exercising. So if I would complete an exercise program, that was the rush. That was the release. And especially with exercise, you have a lot more of natural neurotransmitters going on, making you feel happier after you've exercised. So it's especially easy for me to get addicted to that. I have to be extremely careful. <laughs> um, I This past year or two, I've actually had to buy exercise DVDs that are 10 minutes, 20 minutes, and 30 minutes. And I only cycle through those and I can only do one at a time. Um, so I have to have a natural limitation on that. Um, so there are different things in these different types of self-harm that will hit the neurotransmitter button. You get the release without, you know, having a panic attack or what have you, um, or just losing your ever loving mind. <laughs> mm -hmm. Um, so when you have all these things that you can't control, the pressure builds and you have to have some kind of release. Um, like I said, weighing exercise. Um, there's also some things like skin picking, um, I have not had a lot of that as an adult, but as a child, my face was always marked with sores because I would get acne. My skin wasn't smooth. Um, Hillary McFarland actually talks about this in her book. I know there's a name for it that's completely slipped my mind, but um, you compulsively pick at your skin until it bleeds. And that's the release. The actual skin bleeding is the release or you pull out your hair. Um, and so there's that you obviously have like pornography addiction that can kind of do the same thing um, where you get that release and hormones and all that stuff. And then with cutting, um, you have that same buildup and then actually cutting yourself and like seeing um, the blood and kind of having a physical manifestation of an opening, getting the bad stuff out of you okay. um, is, is the release. Um, and it's incredibly unfortunate that the brain does that, um, where you you kind of have to have a physical manifestation of the pain that you're going through, a physical letting mm -hmm. of the pain. Um, so that is my understanding and my experience, because um, I, I have to be very careful. I can't. Um, there was a Halloween a couple years ago where there was a costume that had cut marks on it, like as a costume. And. I was messed up for weeks. <laughs> mm. I was like, whoa, okay. But that that's my understanding of that. Um, it's just for all of these things going on that are in concept and that are intangible and that can't be seen, the release is actually seeing something in physical space right. that marks a change that you enacted, basically. Mm -hmm. Because there's so many things that... Um, and this is what we've been talking about on this podcast. There's so many messages that we've been told that are so profoundly anti-health and anti-body and against what is good and, and what is at peace with us that our mind is like, um, <laughs> I do that too. <laughs> um, that our mind is reeling, you know, and, and, and then there's a need to purge that and to get that out. Uh, it reminds me of, um, the I think it's a Nine Inch Nails song that Johnny Cash did. I hurt myself today just to see myself or to I forget how the words go, but he wanted to hurt himself so that he could feel pain because he was feeling pain internally and he needed to feel it physically so that it could release in some way. 
Um, yes. You also have that, sorry, I didn't, I don't okay. mean to cut you off. Um, you also have that with dissociations. That's one of the things that, that right. can lead to a, a behavior like that, because as you dissociate, you feel disconnected to your body and doing things like that can actually reconnect you um, as a grounding okay. technique, albeit a horrible okay. grounding technique, but right. And disassociation, uh, that is one technique that uh, the body uses for horrible situations. If you've ever seen, this is terrible, but we had chickens and a chicken got half eaten by a raccoon <laughs> and <laughs> he didn't finish the job. It was like, come on. Um, oh, no. Chicken was dissociated, right? I didn't yep. even realize it because he was, he was just in la la land yep. or she, it was a hen. Um, until I finally figured out that um, oh, it was not no. going to make it and <laughs> put him out of its misery. Uh, but, but that was a time when I could see this chicken has dissociated, right? Because it can't face what just happened. So it's checked out. And, you know, when you're in a situation where somebody is doing something terrible to your body, you, you have this reaction of, I'm out of here. I'm just going to think yeah. about something else. Or if you're in a situation where you can't escape, there is either people disassociate or they go into attack or, or um, you know, kind of anxiety mode of trying to fix it or, or fight in the situation. Um, and so that's interesting that a way to snap yourself out of it is some sort of a strong release of something, uh, of, you know, of, of pain or of sexual release or of... Uh, a strong reward uh, release of, uh, you know, exercise or something like that. Um, yes. This has been so helpful. Uh, did you want to say something? To I, uh, yes, real quick. Um, for any listeners that, you know, might have a pass of this or might know somebody that's dealing with this, um, it's very difficult to get out of these patterns. And I understand not everybody has the resources for counseling or, you know, for things that will help in the immediate sense. However, if you are struggling with something like this, there are a few hacks that I can share with you. Um, and uh, one of those is if you have a red pen, you can actually write on your arm and that can do the same thing to the brain. Um, so that you're not harming yourself, um, but you're still getting that release so that you can live to fight another day. Um, the other thing is a rubber band. If you put it around your wrist and snap it, you can do the exact same thing. Um, I personally, with, with what I struggle with, use ice. Um, not to the point of like hurting my skin or anything, but if I'm having a really rough day, um, I will pull out ice to kind of help me reground myself and I'll put it on my neck or, you know, my arm or wherever I'm feeling like would be the best place to kind of snap myself out of it. So mm. if you are in that position, these might be some things that would help. <laughs> right. Yeah. Because ice can, if you start to get really cold, it, it hurts quite a bit, but you're not actually hurting yourself. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Can you hurt yourself with ice if you probably? Too I long? think you could. Probably. I think you could probably give yourself frostbite. What I do is I wrap it in a towel, and I only use it to reground myself if I'm like feeling kind of out of it or anything like that, or if I feel detached from my body. That's what I use to snap myself out of it. I also okay. use a heating pad. Um, I have a clay one. You can put it in the microwave for a minute, and it'll be warm. And I put it around my abdomen to kind of snap myself back in because it also has that weight. A lot of people mm. use weighted blankets. I can't afford a weighted blanket. It. so I use a heating pad <laughs> but that's also an option 
Okay. Yeah, this is actually where I wanted to go is um, how do we help people? Um, you, you mentioned a few hacks. Um, what are ways that uh, actually I want to ask you before this, how, how not to help people? What are some things to avoid <laughs> if you notice um, somebody might have anorexia or cutting or, or something like this? How, how do you not help people that you just want to warn people off of? It is a very treacherous territory to embark on helping someone that is embedded in some kind of addiction, especially when it's self-harm. Um, be very careful about what you say. Um, things to avoid would be like, well, just stop. Obviously they can't. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, if, they w- if they were capable of that, they would have done it by now if they wanted to. Um, don't congratulate someone on weight loss unless you know they're actively trying to lose weight. Mm-hmm. Um, and don't get other parties involved unless it is a life or death situation because what they've given you is the gift of their trust in confiding in you um, or in, in responding positively to your inquiry about them. Um, so you want to make sure that you don't take away their autonomy because in so many instances, this is because they already didn't have autonomy. If Mm -hmm. after they confide something in you, you continue to further taking away their autonomy, you're going to spiral them. This is something that happens with anorexics when they are um, checked into rehab against their will. Um, A long-term I've seen that have some very severe health consequences for them. Um, even if it was necessary, if you can avoid something like that, definitely avoid it. You want to basically empower them to choose a different path. So, you know, you can give them resources, things like Hillary McFarland's book. I always, always recommend it's got so many things in it in terms of self-harm, in terms of health, in terms of just being able to relate. I did not grow up in a quiverful and Hillary McFarland's book was so helpful for me. Um, but uh, you can give them resources. Um, there's tons and tons of podcasts out there at this point. But um, one thing that I definitely recommend is, I believe it's Pete Walker's um, CPTSD book. I love his book. Um, the Body Keeps Score is really good. Um, things that they can get to on their own time um, and that could potentially be hidden somewhere if they're still in a dangerous situation is really good. Um So, you know, a podcast or something could ostensibly be hidden um, in a phone a little bit easier than a physical book, but you can also get physical books that can be hidden as well. Um, But try to support them in any way. Ask them what they need. Um, They might not know, but they might have an idea that you can start with. Um, Counseling resources. I know that, you know, there's actually some adults that are, married and dealing with this, your local women's shelter might be able to help. Mm. Um, A lot of women's shelters offer free counseling. Um, There's also a lot of online counselors offering free counseling right now, since we are in the middle of a pandemic, um, which has not previously been accessible. Um, And, you know, just physically being there and not telling them that they're a bad person because they've got an addiction, um, even if you don't understand why (laughs) and like why they could possibly be that way because Mm -hmm. um you know growing up i was told that people who cut were you know immature and it was a cry for help and all that stuff right and um you know then 
they, they never get help because all of the adults have said, well, they're just, they're pretending to be troubled. They just want attention. Um, so nobody ever gives them resources and then you've got dead kids. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not good. So just, just be with them and don't make them feel inadequate for what they're going through and make sure that they actually feel like a normal human being, um, yeah. I think is one of the best things you can do. Yeah, just that human connection. And mm-hmm. what I heard you say is human connection and giving them control. Here's yes. some resources. Here's um, perhaps do some research and say, if you ever feel like it, here are some counselors that specialize in this. Here are some um, some podcasts. Here's some things where I've spent some time to research. I've listened to some garbage and I've found some, some things that would be helpful. And here you go. Probably some of the worst things you can do is more religion, religious platitudes. Hey, just pray. And like all things work together for good. And God is forming character in you or, you know, something terrible like that. Um, And uh, yeah, body, you know, say either saying somebody, you look so thin and wonderful or saying, Oh, it looks like maybe you gained weight or, you know, mentioning their modesty or immodesty or, or something like that could really be triggering. Uh, We really want to stay away from those sorts of things. Um, I've so appreciated your time right now. Um, I want to give you a chance to, uh, well, did you want to add something to this uh, podcast? I can't think of anything, honestly. Um, just that I think a lot, a lot of the way that we are limited when it comes to these situations is because of the restrictions that have been placed on us, the mental restrictions and thinking about things. So, and, and it's, it's kind of criminalized to think about things in any other way than what we've been taught. But I think the best thing to do is when you are realizing that something is wrong, give yourself the license to actually think about it without those blinders on and don't feel pressured to go down one path or another because a lot of what happens is you end up getting thrown into one political camp or another when you take off those blinders and that's unfair and that hinders your growth and development in actually figuring out what you believe and what you want to believe and what path you want to choose so when you're coming out of situations like this um, I think it's really important to tell yourself that you have that autonomy and to remind yourself that it is your decision and Mm -hmm. you are allowed to to toss around different theories without being, you know, lambasted for it. Yeah. And I just want to add to that. My wife right now is deconstructing and and she describes herself as an agnostic. And I want to just put out there for any spouses where one spouse or the other is deconstructing or perhaps parents where their child is deconstructing, perhaps children as their parents are deconstructing. People need space. And my wife really has only begun to find physical healing as she has let go of religion. And at this point she can't sort through what was good and what was bad because she mm-hmm. described, like she says, basically I was raised in a cult. Like they had good theology, theoretically um, we weren't on some compound, but there were very cultish control things. And I just mm-hmm. need to let it all go. And that was really hard for me, obviously right away. I'm thinking, well, is she even saved? Is she going to heaven? And I very quickly got to the point where I said, look, I don't think that Jesus is going to kick her out because 
of all these things that have happened to her. I think that Jesus can sort through some of these things. And, and I've said to her over and over, like, just have the journey you need to have. And I want to be here to support you. And I want to say that to anybody else who's trying to help, like give people space because the thing that has caused all this pain for you is a lack of control. And when somebody in your life then says, well, here's one thing you can't do. Like, I'm going to control your beliefs. I'm going to control your ideas or else you're going to hell. Well, that like just give people space. And if you honestly believe that God is going to send people to hell because they don't pass a doctrinal exam, then maybe you need to examine that a little bit critically yourself, because I don't know that that's the Jesus that I understand from scriptures. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and it, it's also really arrogant to say, well, Jesus gave you free will, but I'm not going to. Wow. That's yeah. literally against Jesus. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so people can find your book, Scarlet Virgins. Um, they can also find you on Twitter at uh, New Crunchy Mom on Twitter. You're yes, quite active uh, on Twitter. And, yeah. <laughs> and I would encourage people to listen to our previous podcast. We've got one, uh, Dehumanized by Purity Culture, Domestic Abuse, I'm a Survivor, um, Sex and Purity Culture. We've uh, mentioned a lot of these topics previously, and uh, we're still going on the journey trying to figure ourselves out. And um, so I wish you all well on the journey as you listen to this podcast. And uh, again, just thank you so much for your time, Rebecca. Thank you. And I, I, I wish good things on your family and that little child that keeps popping in and out throughout our time. All right. <laughs> Have a good day, everyone.